Praise the Lord. Glad to be here. Glad you all here. Praise the Lord. Amen. Going to be reading from uh, the book of Haggai, chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How, did you, how do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? And yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst, fear not. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, yet once in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Praise the Lord. Amen. You can remain standing just one second longer as we're going to read that uh, last verse out of Haggai chapter 2, verse 9, because this is our memory verse for the month. So let's read this together. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Amen. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way it speaks, for the way it's... Um, speaks to us in all seasons, in the ups and downs, through the dry and the flourishing, through the sorrowful and through the rejoicing. God, thank you for your commands that are clear to us. Thank you for your grace that is overflowing to us. Thank you for your faithfulness that is steadfast to us. God, as we uh, submit ourselves under your word, may we have receptive hearts. May we have eager, attentive spirits. May we have obedient hands and feet. And may we, with all our hearts, worship and glorify you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. I uh, read a blog this week from a mom that, honestly, I felt like could have been written by just about any and every mom. She was talking about uh, a season in life where she had three young kids at home and was gathered together with friends uh, over dessert and just swapping life stories and catching up on how things were going. And everybody was just kind of sharing about their week and what all was happening. And, and she said, uh, you know, she felt a little, a little out of place because in the, the group that was gathered that night, she was the only one who didn't work outside the home. And so she said this, as the dialogue moved further and further into spreadsheets that needed organizing, clients demanding paperwork and email inboxes that are never at zero, I felt myself having less and less to contribute. I don't deal in overflowing email inboxes. I deal in overflowing laundry baskets. 
I don't have clients who need information from me. I have toddlers who need me to help them go to the bathroom. I don't have spreadsheets that need organizing. I have closets that need organizing. And as I reflect on my work in the moment, I felt silly for even trying to chime in, believing the lie that laundry can't possibly be as important as a work email. Whether in motherhood or in any other role you have as a parent, as a uh, spouse, as a worker in your job, in marriage, in everything we, everything we have, we at one time or another are going to battle the feeling of insignificance. Do we not? There are times when you have done the same thing for the 1,000th and first time and you just ask yourself, why am I still doing this. I always laughed at my dad. He's like, I don't want to spay another cat for the rest of my life because I've done it a million and one times. And I get it. Those are things that we do that are repetitive and it just can feel insignificant. It can be hard in those moments of just doing the mundane or the routine things to feel like it, any, it, it amounts to anything. And when we lose meaning, when we lose significance to our tasks, it can, be, it can be really discouraging, really discouraging. We come back to the book of Haggai this month as we're going to go through this, this, next, this, this first few weeks of the new year. And we come to this passage in Haggai where they are wrestling with the significance of the work that they are called to do. Last week as we started in the book of Haggai, we said the theme of this book is for God speaking through the prophet Haggai to the people of Israel, to this new nation, this nation that's come back from, from exile, and he's told them, consider your ways. Think about your priorities. What are you prioritizing? Last week, he, we saw where he called the people. He said, listen, you've been taking care of your own houses while my house, the temple, is sitting in ruins. Think about your priorities. Do you care more about yourself and your own priorities or what matters for the whole people of God? Consider your ways. The good news of, of Haggai chapter 1 that we saw at the end of last week is that just a few weeks after, they, after Haggai preached that sermon, they obeyed. They got to work. God moved in their spirits and they began the task of rebuilding the temple like they were called to do. They saw what the priority should be and they followed the Lord. But as we turn into chapter 2, we recognize that all is not peaceful yet. They have not quite figured this out. So Haggai chapter 2, what I want to start with this morning, is a problem. Haggai starts with a problem. I want to tell you about this problem. Uh, we can come back, go all the way back. If you, if you flip later on, read the story of Ezra. In Ezra chapter 3, the people had begun building this temple. They, have, they were exiled for 70 years or so. They had come just less than that. And they came back and they started rebuilding the temple. And, ha and Ezra chapter 3 tells about how they laid the foundation of the temple. And this was a momentous occasion for the people of Israel. However, there was a group of people who had seen the temple before. Mathematically, they had to be about 70 years or older to have seen both. But there was a group of people who had seen the temple before it was destroyed, lived through the exile, and now they are there when the foundation is being laid. And as everybody is celebrating, this group of people that saw the first one is weeping. And they were weeping because they realized this temple is not going to be anything like as the glorious temple they had before. It is much smaller, way fewer resources, and will not have 
the glory of what they had before. It says, Ezra 3.12, The old men who had seen the first house wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of the house being laid. A smaller group of people with way fewer resources, way uh, less manpower, way fewer uh, uh, resources as far as wood and materials and all that, way poorer, and they're laying a, a very small foundation. And the comparison they're making in their heart was discouraging. They're looking at the work and saying, why even go on? Why should we even continue? This is barely even getting anything done. What's the significance of this? Haggai had motivated them. God's Spirit moving through Haggai's message had motivated them after 16 years of stopping completely to get back to work. And now they're like, I don't know if it's even worth continuing. And I love it in the book of Haggai. We don't always have exact dates through different things because it's kind of hard to piece together what kings started when. But because of the way Haggai dates it, we can know the exact dates that he's preaching these sermons. So Haggai 1.1, when it talks about the second year of Darius, the sixth month, the first day, that was August 29th, 520 B.C. That's pretty cool. We can pick the exact, we know exactly when that sermon was preached. And we know their obedience at the end of that uh, chapter, verse 15, was September 21st. So a little less than a month later, they hear the message, they get to work. A little less than a month later. However, we get to chapter 2, and we've only gone ahead to, to, from September 21st to October 17th, and he's back preaching again. So they got to work, but less than four weeks later, they're like, I don't know if we can do this. I don't know if we can continue in the work. God, speaking through Haggai, says, do you see this as nothing? You're looking at this, and in your eyes, the work you're doing is like it's nothing. It's insignificant. The work we're doing feels pointless. If it's not going to be as great as it was, why even try? Another prophet God was using in this same moment to minister to his people was the prophet Zechariah. And when he preached in this same moment of the people getting discouraged... He said, uh, this is God speaking through Zechariah chapter 4, verse 10, Whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice. In, in, in Haggai, it's, do you see it as nothing? In Zechariah, it's, are you despising the day of small things? What you're doing feels so insignificant. Are you going to give up on what you're doing? The task we have before us often feel that way, insignificant. That inconsequential. They don't matter for much of anything. They're mundane. They're ordinary. They're taking care of just the, the taxi cab driving of our children. They're doing the laundry. They're doing the dishes. They're doing the, the same task at work over and over again. And you wonder, why does this really matter? And the same is true in ministry. We made the comparison last week that when Haggai was calling God's people to build the house of God, the New Testament equivalent is us. Not a building, but the people of God. So to obey the heart of Haggai is to not build a building necessarily, although we appreciate, I said last week, we appreciate the warmth. I'm, not, I'm glad for the building. But it's to invest in the people. Building the people of God is building the house of God. And even that can feel mundane. It can feel frustrating. It can feel discouraging. Perhaps for some of you, you started in a discipleship group this week, and I hope you've got all kinds of energy and enthusiasm. Some of us, who'd have thought we got rained out Tuesday? Who'd have thought in January you could get rained out of a discipleship group, but people are all over, e-learning is happening, you know? If you haven't, if it hasn't happened to you already, even ministry can feel mundane 
and discouraging. There are times you go and you've been pouring into somebody's life, and you probably know this. you got people you love. You've been trying to love them well, trying to help them, and you feel like you're banging your head against a concrete wall, and it's not moving, and you're getting hurt, right? That's how ministry feels sometimes. It feels like, why do I keep doing the same thing, expecting different results? Ministry can feel insignificant. It can feel discouraging. It can feel disheartening. Ministry is loving people, and people are challenging. <laughs> but that it is the work of, 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 of pouring into and building the house of God. The returned exiles are looking at the, the work before them, and their very humble start, and it's like nothing to them. It looks like nothing to them. They're despising the day of small things. That is the problem, and God addresses the problem. And he starts addressing the problem with an encouragement. He addresses the problem with an encouragement. He says this in Haggai chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, the high priest. Be strong, all ye peoples of the Lord, declares the Lord. Do the work, or he says work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Why should you keep going, people of Israel, returned exiles? Why should you keep building the temple? Why should you keep going about this work that looks like the days of small things, that looks insignificant? He says, here's why. Here's my encouragement. I am with you. My spirit remains among your midst. You are not alone. He says, just like the covenant that I have made. This is the repeated refrain of God with his people despite their sin generation after generation. With Adam and Eve, he walked in the cool of the garden. They sinned. God didn't leave them. God met the people of Israel with Moses, leaving them, bringing them out of Egypt. And he told the generation wandering in the wilderness, I am with you. You. He told Joshua as they crossed into the land and came to conquer this new land, he said, I am with you. He told David as he begins to set up this kingdom, I am with you. It is a refrain from beginning to end in the Bible. And this generation that is small and weak and poor, he reminds them of the good news. I am with you. If God has promised to never leave us or forsake us, then we can take on the task before us. We can do the work of the Lord. He says all this is according to the covenant, just as he has proclaimed all along. And because he is with us, it transforms an insignificant work and makes it significant. You know, you, you do this in, in all kinds of things you do. There, there, are, there are tasks that in and of themselves are significant, right? But many of the things we do, what makes them significant is not what you do, but who you do it with, right? My, my mom sent Amber and me two pictures yesterday and said, I forgot, Lydia told me I had to send these pictures to you. They were, they were very important pictures. They were Lydia helping bake brownies on the kitchen counter at her house. And the other one was Lydia building a little blocks to make a little castle. In the grand scheme of eternity, that little thing of brownies... And that little castle made out of blocks are radically insignificant. Especially because I ate those brownies in like one day. Like they're gone. <laughs> they are insignificant. They are history. 
But you know why that moment was significant? I'll give you a clue. It had nothing to do with the brownies, and it had nothing to do with the block castle thing. It's because it was a granddaughter and a grandmother spending time together. It's not what they did. It's who they did it with. The good news of every task that you ever do is that you can do it with the Lord. It's not always what you do. It's who you're doing it with. God says, I know this task before you of building this temple looks, looks radically insignificant. But I'm here. I'm with you. We are doing this together. And the encouragement of the job is that I haven't left you and I never will. God has made a promise and he keeps his promises. God is with you. The significance isn't always in what you do. It's in who you're doing it with. God's presence transforms an insignificant task and makes it significant. And his presence transforms an impossible task and makes it possible. The people of Israel looking around the nations and say, first of all, we don't have enough money. Second of all, everybody around us hates us and wants to stop us from doing this. Third of all, we don't have enough people to stop them from stopping us, so it's impossible. You got it, God? We're quitting. We can't do it. And God says, remember, I am with you. And did you hear the name that he reminds the people, one of his names? He says, I am the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of everything angel armies, the Lord over everything. He says, you feel little, little, they are. They were a little bitty group of people on the edge of the Persian Empire, a little tribe of Judah, probably 25 miles in radius at this point, just a few thousand people that have gathered together. They felt insignificant, poor, couldn't do anything. God says, wait, wait, you remember who I am, right? All the angels, all the armies of angels do what I want them to do. And I'm telling you, I'm with you. So I promise there's more for us than against us, right? God's presence, the encouragement is that he takes an impossible task and makes it possible. It takes an insignificant task and makes it significant. Are you worried you won't be able to do the thing God has called you to do? Don't forget who asked you to do it. He's the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth, and he is with us. That's how he begins to address the problem. He addresses it with an encouragement that I am with you. And then he gives his people a challenge. I see the problem. You feel insignificant. Here's the encouragement. I am with you. And so here's the challenge. Get to work. Get to work. You probably already heard it. It's embedded in the, in the encouragement and the challenge together. Haggai 2, 4 and 5. So now... Be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work. That's an imperative. That's a command. Work. For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when I came out of the land of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. So the commands in those two verses, three times he says, be strong. Once he says, work. Once he says, fear not. These are all common refrains that God gives to his people when they're facing an impossible task. Like I mentioned, Joshua crossing over the, the river and heading into the promised land. After Moses has died, their leader is gone. What are we going to do? He says, Joshua, 
be strong and courageous. Only be strong and very courageous. According to all that I've commanded you. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Three times God tells Joshua going into the promised land. Three times God speaks through Haggai. Be strong people and do the work I've called you to do. Similar to the way Paul would challenge the church at Rome. Romans 8.31 What shall we say to all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? God is with us. What could possibly stop us? If God has called us to this task, people of Israel, if our job is to build the house, build the house. He's going to be with you. Nothing can stop you if God is calling you to it. God's presence motivates us to action. If ever you think, sit back and go, well, I mean, God's with us. He's all-powerful. Why don't you just do it? I'm just going to sit here and watch, right? Then you've missed how God's presence works. God's Spirit stirred up the heart of, Jer Jer of Joshua and Zerubbabel and stirred up the remnant of the people. God's Spirit moved His people to do the work. I don't know why God does that. Sometimes God does just make things happen, right? He's amazing. He can do everything, everything He wants. But so oftentimes you read through the stories of God's Word, you hear the testimony of God's people, and what happens? His Spirit moves through a Peter. His Spirit moves through an unlikely prophet like Jonah. And God does the work through the people of God. If God is stirring up your spirit to get to work, then get to work. Do the job. Do the thing He's called you to do. Don't be lazy. Don't give up. Don't quit. Be strong. Let's do this. Some of us need to hear this morning for one reason or another. Let's go. Let's, let's get the let out. Let's get to work. God has called us to be the people of God and to build up the house of God. Do you have eyes to see the rubble around us? Do you have eyes to see the brokenness of the people sitting in the room with you today? Do you have eyes to see the aches from broken relationships and grief? Do you have eyes to see those that need a shoulder to cry on, those that need to share their story? Do you have eyes to see people who, who are brand new to reading the Bible and just need somebody to sit down with them and walk with them and teach them how to open God's Word? Do you have eyes to see people who just need a word of encouragement or a hug or a pat on the back or a message this week that just says, I'm thinking about you? Do you see the rubble? Do you see the work? Do you see the opportunity? Do you see the lost people living next door to you? Do you see the lost people at work with you? Do you see the opportunities? Get to work. Let's go. There's work to be done. The problem is it feels insignificant and impossible, and it is impossible. It is not insignificant. But God is with you, and He's the Lord of hosts. And if He's called you to it, He'll empower you for it. Let's go. Let's get to work. Commit yourself to a group of people in a discipleship group or some other format. You don't have to fit our group. Whatever you want to make it work. Link arms with people. Link arms with the church. Join a church. Doesn't have to be this one. Find a good church. Link arms and say, I'm in. I'm on the team. Get out of the stands and get on the field. And let's go to work because, wow, there's a lot of work to be done. Amen. There is a lot of work to be done. And if in, your stand, in the stands and you're cheering for the work, that's great. But the invitation's out there. Let's get on the field. Let's go to work.
and say, well, I, I'm not good enough. I didn't go to seminary. You probably lose more in seminary than you gain sometimes. Like, it's okay. All the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord, Haggai 1.12, and the people feared the Lord. He told them, fear not. You know how you aren't afraid of the work? Is that you fear God more than you fear the work. You fear the Lord, you revere, you rejoice, and you tremble in the presence of God. Zerubbabel, Haggai, Zechariah, Joshua, none of these guys, none of these women, none of the people working had any superpower strength. You know what they had? They had the Lord of hosts. And if you have repented of your sins and believed in Jesus Christ for your salvation, so do you. So let's get to work. And at that point right there, we could have said, Haggai, thank you for your message. Amen. We'll see you next week. And he's like, I'm not done. Because <laughs> he says, I've got a promise for you that's even better. There is something still to come that is better than anything that's come before. Haggai has showed them the problem. God addressed it with an encouragement. He gave them a challenge. And then he said, I got to tell you, about what is still to come. He says, yes, right now things look insignificant, but let me tell you what's ahead, because the best is yet to come. Haggai chapter 2, 6 and 7, he says, I will shake the heavens and the earth, and the sea and the dry land. I will shake the nations. That is earthquake language. Things are not going to be like they were. He's going to shake things up. What is he going to do? Verse 7. So the treasures of all the nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Right now, the, the nations, he says, they're ignoring you. They're jeering you. They're, they're taunting you. But there's something better to come. Verse 8. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. He says, you're so worried about paying for the temple. You forgot who's in charge of all the banks and all the money in all the world. It's the Lord of hosts. The same one that's got the angel armies also has all the gold and the silver. So you don't have to worry about that. And he says this in verse 9. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. And all the people that saw the former temple had to say, whoa, whoa time out, Haggai. I, I've read my Bible. I saw Solomon. I not saw him, but I, I read about Solomon and all that he did. There's no way that what we're doing here today in 520 B.C. is going to get anywhere close to what Solomon did 500 years before. The older generation is saying, no way, Haggai, no way. But God said the latter glory, the glory of the house we're building, is going to be better. It's going to be more glorious than the house that Solomon built. How is that remotely possible? Well, here's how. What Haggai gives us is what frequently is called a, a telescoping prophecy. He says what's coming, there's a few different things ahead. That It's kind of like the, the frequent illustration uses like if you're looking at a mountain range from a long way off it looks like all those mountains are together but sometimes when you get closer together it actually those mountains are miles apart right similarly when Haggai's prophesying there's at least I can think of three different mountain ranges that are ahead for him he says the latter how latter glory is going to exceed the, the one that came before the nations are going to come and they're going to give the the wealth to fund and make this a glorious temple if you go in the book of Ezra and just flip a couple chapters ahead to chapter 6, when, they, when they, all the, the people are trying to stop Ezra and, the, and them from building the temple, he's, King Darius says, wait, wait, I'm sorry, we got things mixed up. I don't want you to just let them build the temple. I want you to go 
support it. Go give your money to it. So that's what happens. It's a complete reversal. God's people get the wealth from nations coming and building the temple. But that's just the first mountain. The second mountain is even better. The reason that temple was even more glorious than Solomon's temple is because the glory that came into it. When you go read Solomon, the way he described the temple, when they finished, a cloud descends and it just fills up the temple. And they're amazed at the presence of God. But for Haggai's temple, do you know how God showed up in that temple? He walked in on two feet. Actually, the first time he was carried in by his mother Mary. The reason this temple was even more glorious than Solomon's is that it's the same temple Jesus walked in. Now, it went through a pretty major renovation before Jesus got there. King Herod started working on it. It got bigger and better, and that was more glorious. But the things Herod did to it didn't make it more glorious. Imagine if Joshua, the high priest, and Zerubbabel, maybe they did have a little bit of an idea, but imagine if they knew with every stone they're laying that Jesus the Messiah would come in this temple. Imagine the motivation they would have for the work if they knew in the future what God was going to do with the work they're accomplishing. Imagine how excited they would be said, for generations, for thousands of years, we've been waiting on the Messiah, and now we get to be the ones that build the temple that Jesus is going to come into. They'd have been pumped for that work. They'd have been there, you can't stop me from working. I can't wait to be a part of that work. You see, for us, something similar happens because I think there's a third fulfillment of Haggai's prophecy. He says, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. There's a house coming, he says, that is even more glorious than Solomon's temple. You know, I think he had in mind you and me. We are building the house of God when we minister to one another. And as glorious as the cedars of Lebanon were for Solomon, as amazing as it was that he got together that much gold to, to cover everything in gold, it pales in comparison to how beautiful you are. You are the bride of Christ. You are the temple of God's people. And God is coming back again for you. The reason why the glory extends beyond what Solomon did is that Christ is coming Again, Haggai is quoted one time in the New Testament. In Hebrews chapter 12, quoting this passage, he says, now, this is uh, Hebrews 12, 26. Now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And he goes on in verse 27 to say this. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. This earthquake that, that Haggai was prophesying about was this time when God's coming back to say, hey, Pay attention. Jesus is here. The old has passed away. The new has come. What is fleeting will pass away, and what is eternal will last forever. When God shakes the heavens and earth that time, when Jesus comes back in all the glory, not just the, the few walls inside one building are going to be, be covered in gold. The streets are going to be covered in gold, right? It is going to be far more glorious. God is coming back to do a work to redeem his people once and for all, to finish it, that it be forever and ever accomplished. And so the best is still to come. 
Peter tells us, you yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house. He's telling you, your work and ministry lasts forever. Forever. Just like Joshua would have been so excited if he knew that every stone he put in the temple would be a a part of the, the temple where Jesus would walk. You get to do that. When you invest in people, when you pour your life into helping others know Jesus better or know him for the first time, you're putting, you're putting a block on the temple. You're putting a one more stone down. We are living stones being built up at the spiritual house. You're building an eternal temple. You're doing something that lasts forever. Forever. That's significant. That matters. So there is hope beyond anything else. There is nothing that can stop your hope. Your work matters. Parents, every investment you make in your child to help them know that they are loved, they are valuable, they are significant, they are sinners, and they need a Savior is an eternal investment. Spouses, every investment you make in one another to preach the gospel to each other of forgiveness and grace and reconciliation, that is an eternal investment. For you who are at work, working and contributing and investing in people and investing in in ways to make the world a better place. You're saying we're doing things that matter because God is with us. You and I have absolutely no idea of the ripple effects of our actions. Generations and generations will be affected by how you minister to people. Think about just one of your children knowing the Lord and what that means for generations. I watched that in my, my in-law's family tree. Every time we get together, the picture has to get wider and wider, right? They've got eight kids, and all of us keep having more and more kids. It's, I don't even know how many are Amber's side of the family, just one generation's above us. Your ministry will multiply. Your ripple effect goes far beyond what you can, you can even begin to comprehend. Take one generation, five generations, 500 years from now, the eternal effect of you investing in the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the hope you give us. Father, we acknowledge so often what we have before us, the work we have before us, feels insurmountable and insignificant. And yet you've given us hope. Father, whenever we lose hope, Bring us to repentance. Bring us to a place of trusting in you. Bring us us to a place of knowing you are with us. And may we be reminded once again of hope. God, thank you that you've invited us to be a part of the work that you do. We don't know why you did that, but we're grateful for it. And so God, we pray that as you invite us into that work, We will be ministers of love and reconciliation and joy and peace to those around us. God, strengthen us for the work that we may delight in you and delight in participating in your eternal kingdom. God, we trust today the best is still to come. In Jesus' name, amen. You can stand and sing with us, but also if you'd like to, you're welcome to come pray at the altar. Come pray with me.